Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway, still in his bunker. Say hello, Scott. Well, hi, everybody. I'm bunking in my bunker. No, I'm not, actually. I don't even know what that means. No. But hello. But hello. I've got, I've got the COVID crazies. The quarantine crazies. We've got the corn crazies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I saw someone er, write it as quarantine the other day. <laughs> C-O-R-N-T-E-E-N. Quarantine. <laughs> I love it. Anyway. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the U.S. or U.K., text HOME to 741741. You'll be matched with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free, 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, please go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Well, uh, it's good to see you again here on yes. Zoom. Yes, Zoomity Zoom Zoom. Yeah, we are Zooming. Mm-hmm. Who's who's Zooming who? Remember that song? I don't. Is that a real song? Or did uh, you just make that up? I have to look it up now. I mean, it'll yeah. be a little pause while I do. Who's Zooming? I don't think it's real. I think you just made that up. And um, coincidentally, while you're Googling it, there may actually be a song, but it will be coincidental. It is an actual song. Oh, yeah. There you yeah. go. It's by Aretha Franklin, Scott. You yeah. should know this. Holy shit, really? Yeah. It's, and it's called Who's Zooming Who? Who's Zooming Who? Weird. Yeah. I just I played a little the... of it for Scott that we can't play on the show because we'll get sued. So, yeah. and, and that's we don't want that. I can sing it. Who's Zooming Who? But, uh, da, yeah, da, da, yeah, exactly. Da, da. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. one of those songs from the 80s that is, uh, it's kind of, Bizarre how it ever became. Uh, well, what was the yeah? Because what was the context of zooming in the eighties? Does that mean like like 
hitting a bong or something? Yeah, I don't know. Everybody's wearing very pastel-y, pretty colors in the video, so. Of course they are. There's a little girl jumping rope and a couple walking along, and the gentleman has a ghetto blaster on his his shoulder. God, I always wanted to be that guy. Yeah, I was that guy. I had a ghetto blaster. But I wasn't that cool. I was just a goofy white guy with a ghetto blaster. I had one, I hesitate to uh, call it a ghetto blaster, because it was pretty small. I mean, Mm. structurally, it it had two speakers and a tape deck and a radio. So it it qualified, like it was long but thin. But if you try walking around the streets with, with that thing on your shoulder, it's laughable. It was red, too. Yeah, well, that's not good. No, so, yeah. Let's get on with this show. Yeah, let's try that. This episode will be the first in which we cover women who have been murdered along the 725-kilometer stretch of Highway 16 between Prince Rupert and Prince George, British Columbia. Since 1969, there have been numerous women and girls, many of Indigenous heritage, who have gone missing along the route, earning it the sinister nickname it has become known by, the Highway of Tears. There are different opinions around which murders along this route and what range of time should be classified as Highway of Tears cases. The exact count of victims attributed to that series depends on who you're talking to. So it ranges from 18 cold cases on the RCMP EPANA task force's uh, official list to more than 40 according to Indigenous organizations, and on more comprehensive lists, it goes up to as many as 72. Holy shit. With victims as young as three years old. Oh my God, wow. So it's it's kind of all over the place. Uh, the victims in this episode are not included in the RCMP EPANA task force list, as the perpetrator was much too young to have committed those murders. This is episode 124, Highway of Tears, Jill, Natasha, Cynthia, and Lauren, 2009 to 2010. We've chosen to cover the cases of these four victims as they were committed by a single perpetrator who has been caught, tried, and convicted for their murders. Uh, We'll intermittently cover more of these murders, many unsolved, as our podcast goes along. We have chosen not to cover them all in order, as it would be a mammoth undertaking and could take at least over a year's worth of episodes were we to treat them the way we really want to. Yeah, exactly. According to their website, Prince George, quote, sits on the traditional lands of the Lady Tene First Nation, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, so please forgive me, whose name means people where the rivers come together in the carrier language. The website continues, quote, Prince George is a city of 74,000 people and is the largest in northern British Columbia, It is a community with assets that include a university, a college, affordable housing, well-paying jobs, and a comprehensive transportation infrastructure. Prince George's highways and railways in particular are complemented by an international airport, and these vital transportation links connect local residences and businesses' resources, primarily forest products, energy, minerals, and metals, and agricultural products to markets around the world. Have you ever been to Prince George? I don't think I have. How long of a drive is it from here? Well, it's 780 kilometers due north of Vancouver. Okay. I've driven it. Carol and I have driven this before, um, as well as the 170 more kilometers down Highway 16 to a little place called Indaco. Mm. If you draw an X through British Columbia uh, from end to end, 
you pretty yep. much land right in Endaco, which is kind of weird. Never, never even heard of it. Um, our friends Art and Joanne live there, so that's why we went. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because I know Banff is about eight hundred kilometers, and that's about a ten-hour uh, drive, roughly. Uh, maybe a little less, eight to ten hours, and so okay, gives me a good understanding mm-hmm. of how far uh, how far it is. So. My friend Art has said uh, to get to his place, just drive to Prince George and turn left onto Highway 16, and then drive some more. So that's that's his directions. <laughs> uh, but there are long stretches of nothing but wilderness along the highway, so it's easy yeah. to see how someone could just go missing in the area and how it'd be the perfect stomping ground for a serial killer or several, as it seems to be the case. Yeah, I, I agree with the several. Jill Stacy Stachenko was born on December 2nd, 1973. According to court documents, she was a mother to six children from ages 2 to 14. There were four boys and two girls, and that's a handful for sure. Mm-hmm. Jill had a beautiful singing voice, but she had her demons too. In an October 31st, 2009 Digital Journal article written by Salim Jiwa, a woman who knew Jill talked about her struggles with drugs and alcohol and how she believed Jill's vocal talents could have taken her places. The woman, identifying herself only as Ricky, said, Had circumstances been different, I believe that Jill Stachenko could have been a famous person. Hmm. The woman also talked about Jill Stachenko as being a sex worker. Jill's children were in provincial care uh, as of her disappearance. According to a CTV News report in late October 2009, due to Jill's, quote, high-risk lifestyle. Okay. Jill had people who loved her, though. She was struggling with her addictions and wanted to escape the streets. Jill was caught in that loop that so many people with the disease of addiction and their loved ones are familiar with. You have a rough time using, decide to clean up for any of a million great reasons, get clean, and then when things seem to be improving, relapse seemingly out of nowhere. All too familiar. One man, a former client named Jim Giller, had fallen for Jill and was trying to help her. He'd paid drug debts for her and was giving her friendship, money, and even a place to crash. Hmm. Giller saw Jill for the last time on Thanksgiving weekend on October 9th, 2009. From an article in the Prince George Citizen by Mark Nielsen on July 16th, 2014, quote, She hopped into his vehicle and they drove over to the 7-Eleven on 20th, where Giller invited her to turkey dinner at his sister's home, but she declined. She wasn't ready to go out for dinner, you know what I mean, Giller said. She had too much hustle on the go. Mm. Giller dropped her off near near 20th and Queensway, where they hugged, and he told her to take care and phone him. She lit a cigarette, threw her purse over her shoulder, and I went to dinner, Gil said. End quote. Yeah, it's just fascinating uh, hearing from the last person to have seen somebody. It's always a bit creepy. Yeah. Knowing that that person, um, that connection, that goodbye was the last last time that happened. Jill's family reported her missing on October 22nd, 2009. She'd been away for a few days before, but this was much too long, and they were starting to worry. According to court documents, quote, Her body was located by Johnny Pius, half buried in a shallow grave in a somewhat isolated part of a gravel pit located near the intersection of Otway Road and Ospica Boulevard in the city of Prince George on October 26, 
2009. I'm going to imagine that's a fairly rural area? Yeah, it was well known for bush parties, and there were hiking trails nearby. Gotcha. In the October 31st, 2009 CTV News article I referenced before, RCMP Constable Gary Godwin, who knew Jill Stachenko, related some kind words to reporters. She's a very pretty girl, Godwin said. She wasn't really hard. She was really nice to talk to. Jill's murder had been particularly brutal. According to court documents, her autopsy showed that she, quote, suffered a series of massive blunt force blows to the back and the right side of her head and to her face, which caused in part scalp lacerations, skull fractures, and cerebral contusions. There were multiple bruises from similar blows to her forehead, forearms, and upper arms, as well as to both her knees. The amount of blood loss was so extreme that the pathologist had trouble obtaining a sample during the autopsy. Holy shit. So it was a physical beating? It wasn't like a shooting or anything? No, it was a beating with God. with an instrument. Yeah, like how much more personal can it get? Yeah, and she also, if she had those contusions on her forearms and upper arms, she was fighting back and defensive wounds, yeah. Yeah. They were still able to source a DNA profile, though, that belonged to an unknown male from evidence found on Jill's body, thanks to swabs. Mm. In another statement, Constable Godwin told CTV News, quote, I think this is an isolated case because of her, quote, high-risk lifestyle. He said, it's very tragic. Police followed leads, but no solid suspects came to light. Little did they know that this was only the beginning. Mm. She was 35? Yeah. Yeah. Still way too bloody young. Jesus. Natasha Lynn Donovan Montgomery was born on March 14, 1987, and was of indigenous heritage. Like Jill Stachenko, Natasha was musical as well. She loved to sing and played both trumpet and clarinet. She had even recorded herself singing covers of a few of her favorite songs. Oh, nice. I was invited to a private Facebook group dedicated to the memory of Natasha by her cousin, Kathy, a longtime friend of ours who does the books for Dark Poutine and is a member of the Umberyard. That's so crazy. The photos of Natasha there paint a picture of a darling little girl with happy eyes and a playful smile who grew into a creative and vibrant young woman in a loving home. Natasha was sporty and outdoorsy, too. She was a figure skater, softball player, enjoyed fishing, quadding, and hiking. In one of the photos in Facebook, you can see uh, teenage Natasha standing near a body of water, proudly displaying a freshly caught fish in her right hand and her weapon of choice, a fishing rod, in her left. <laughs> so small town and so ideal, or I idyllic. In a 2014 Vancouver Sun article, Natasha's mother, Luann, is quoted as saying her daughter, Natasha, was, quote, a beautiful person inside and out. Quote, she always had a huge smile. When she was in the room, everyone knew she was there. She had a huge bubbly personality. She was friendly to everyone and always found a way to make you feel good, end quote. Mm. Sounds wonderful. She was also the mother of two children, a son and a daughter. Natasha and her longtime boyfriend and father of her two young children had known each other since she was 12 years old. As with Jill Stachenko, Natasha was struggling with the disease of addiction and the troubles that commonly go along with it. She and her boyfriend had split over her drug use, but she was always in contact with the kids, calling every day. 
Her plan was to visit them soon, but she never got a chance to. I think it's important to always remind people that you can be an addict and still be a great person. Yeah, and I want to talk about that at the end of the show. Good, good, yeah. Natasha was trying to get her life back together and had been dealing with legal issues related to her addiction before heading back to Quinell, where she was from. At the end of August 2010, a friend dropped Natasha off at the Fast Gas Station at 20th Avenue and Queensway in Prince George. She promised to call him later, but she didn't. Knowing that she was going to get a welfare check the next day, this man waited for Natasha to show up while at the welfare office for the next two days, but she never showed up. From court documents, quote, At the time of her disappearance, Ms. Montgomery was staying at the apartment of Jeffrey Menton, where she had been staying for about two weeks. When she failed to return, as she said she would, Mr. Menton became concerned. Menton sent her an email the next day, end quote. She never responded to that. Yikes. Natasha's family reported her missing after she failed to call her kids after a few days. It was extremely odd for her not to contact them. She has not been seen since, and her body has never been found. We'll talk more about Natasha later. Okay. Cynthia Frances Maas was born on May 29, 1975, and her family called her Cindy. According to court documents, she was a mother of a little girl, and as her family said, a daughter, a sister, auntie, cousin, niece, grandchild, friend, and mother. In a Vancouver Sun article from 2014, her mother Judy is quoted as saying that Cynthia was born with a disability and there was and was therefore most vulnerable to those that preyed on such people. <sighs> Judy also said that against all odds, Cynthia had graduated from a private school. Judy went on to say, quote, She was innocent. She had dreams and aspirations for her life. However, she fell victim to a drug when her cousin told her to try something that would make her feel good. She believed that everybody had everyone's best interests in their heart, because she did. She was trusting, end quote. Oh, God, my heart. I hate the story of how most, a lot of people get involved in addiction, hearing something like that. And a lot of what we're seeing in these cases, these are vulnerable people mm -hmm. that someone is not only taking advantage of, but murdering as well. Well, which is just, it's the story that just fucking kills me because you should be allowed to just be a good person. You should be allowed to be trusting. You should be allowed to uh, put your faith in other people. But m so many times we just see s there's some predator who comes along and takes advantage of that. To what degree? It varies. Most of us, it doesn't stop us from trying to be good people. But um, it's just... Uh, just, it just destroys my soul knowing there are people out there who just capitalize off of uh, others' weaknesses. Judy said that Cynthia, quote, was not happy about where her life was at and wanted to change it so desperately. Even at her darkest points, Cynthia kept in contact with her family as she was trying to clean up her life and had been attending 12-step programs. Mm, good. Cynthia was, as many who suffer from the disease of addiction, having trouble remaining sober. The day before Cynthia Maas went missing on September 9, 2009, it was clear that she was taking steps in the right direction to change her life for the better. 
She interacted with Sarah Higgins, a social worker, and with Denise Wagner, uh, the coordinator for the AWACS shelter, for whom she had completed a series of forms. And AWACS stands for Association Advocating for Women and Community. Oh, perfect. Thank you. On the day before she disappeared, she also spoke, Cynthia also spoke with her stepfather, Bill Costley, by telephone at about 10 to 3 that afternoon. She was last seen on the evening of September 10, 2010, at the apartment of Patricia Theason and Tim Senf. She bathed and was given a, a set of clean clothes. Before Cynthia left, Patricia even gave her a jacket. Cynthia's family became concerned after they had not heard from her for a while. It wasn't until almost a month later that the answer to her whereabouts came. From court documents, quote, Her body was found in a somewhat remote area of the L.C. Gun Park on October 9, 2010, by two police officers patrolling the area. The body had been dragged up against a tree up against a tree line and left naked from the waist down with her pants rolled down over her feet, end quote. Oh, oh Jesus. Cynthia was wearing the jack- a jacket that was later identified by Patricia Thiessen as the one she had given her friend. Yeah, yeah. The autopsy was performed, and according to court documents, it was determined that Cynthia, quote, had suffered a series of massive blunt force trauma blows to her head and face, resulting in multiple fractures to the facial area, as well as fractured ribs, a fractured right clavicle and scapula. In addition, she suffered penetrating injuries to the right chest and neck and damage to various vertebrae. Dr. Symes, the pathologist, found that there were at least five blunt impacts visible on the left and top of her skull and a total of 16 impacts to the skull. Sorry, just such violence in these killings. Oh, my gosh. It's ridiculous. He also found fracture of the right wrist and numerous fractures of the right left hand with extensive bruising. So, again, defensive wounds. These women all seem to have known that they were about to die. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. That's just, I mean, you immediately put yourself and try to picture yourself in their shoes in that moment. And it's just so hard to wrap your head around what one must be thinking and going through. Yeah. Cynthia's cause of death was, quote, attributed to blunt force trauma to the head and penetrating injuries to the right chest and neck. (sighs) From a CBC article after the discovery of Cynthia's body, quote, we do want the general public to remain vigilant, in particularly our more vulnerable citizens, said RCMP Corporal Dan Moskaluk. Quote, the sole and most important fact that has been established is that Cynthia Maas is a victim. Our duty and responsibility is to bring to justice whomever is responsible for her death, end quote. From the same CBC article, quote, things are not going good in the North, said Mavis Erickson, the coordinator of the Highway of Tears program. She works as a liaison between victims' family, police, and the government. Women continue to go missing in the North and the numbers keep rising and, and so far there hasn't been a case that has been solved. So we don't know if there is a serial killer or what the circumstances are in the North. End quote. A break in the case would come about a month later, but only after the youngest victim of this monster would die. Yep. 
Lauren Don Leslie was born on January 5, 1995. She did not live to see her 16th birthday. We'll take a break right here, and when we come back, we'll hear about the discovery of Lauren Leslie's body and the events that led up to the killer's capture and eventual conviction. And we're back. So, what are you thinking so far, Scott? It's just a lot of sadness, man. I didn't know much about the first three victims. Mm -hmm. I remember a lot about the fourth and final one because uh, it was a big story. Right. When it happened and how it happened and everything. So, uh, it's fascinating and terrifying and sad and heartbreaking to hear the circumstances around the death of the original, the first three. Yeah, and it's interesting how it took uh, a little girl to get everybody's attention. Yeah. And I'm not minimizing her death in comparison in any mm-hmm. way, but uh, it's it's kind of, I guess, speaks to the way society thinks. Yeah, you know? a, a 35-year-old sex worker who... Uh, dies a violent death, there is a part of our society and culture that's like, well, yeah, it's part of the territory. No, it's not. It's not part of it. It dehumanizes people. Absolutely. Yeah. This is why I always look into what I can find out about these people who have been murdered as a person. Yes. They, They were people. This event that happened that took them from the planet is not their entire life. No. It's probably just a few moments of it. Yeah, such a good point, Mike. You're you're spot on. I agree with you completely, and that's a great point. Thanks. The accounting of what happened next comes mainly from court documents. On the evening of Saturday, November 27, 2010, Constable Kaler from Fort St. James was heading south on Highway 27 toward Vanderhoof, just after 9 p.m. in a fully marked RCMP pickup truck. He was going to go pick up a piece of evidence from another case from an an officer at the Vanderhoof detachment. They were going to meet each other about halfway Mm -hmm. because it's a long drive. Yeah. The area adjoining Highway 27 is mostly remote forest with few developments other than the occasional logging roads providing some access for logging operations, and it's largely uninhabited. As Constable Kaler approached the midpoint of the trip, the highway crested a small ridge which provided him with a view down onto a long stretch of Highway 27 to the south. He saw to the south the lights of a vehicle approaching the highway from the east at a slight angle to the south. Though the vehicle was at some distance away, he had the impression it was traveling quickly and described the headlights as bouncing as it approached the highway. Hmm. When the black GMC Sierra 4x4 truck entered the highway, it was clearly in a hurry to get out of there and sped off. Constable Kaler clocked it at between 110 and 115 kilometers per hour as he pulled up behind. Good speed. It's going pretty good. Mm -hmm. The license plate was obscured by snow. Kaler turned on his lights and pulled the truck over. Constable Kaler had arranged to meet Sidhu and he arrived soon after and acted as backup in the traffic stop. The driver was a large, baby-faced man who claimed he was on his way to his grandfather's house. The man had a smear of what appeared to be blood on his chin. 
There was also an open beer can behind the driver's seat. So the officer asked the man to step out on the basis of noticing an open alcohol container. As the man stepped out, Kaler noticed more of what appeared to be blood on the man's light-colored shorts. There was also a pool of blood on the driver's side floor of the truck and blood on one of the man's sneakers. Jeez. Yeah. Wearing shorts in the winter along that stretch of highway did not make sense and sent up red flags in the minds of the officers. Everything about that situation, you're just out there uh, going to meet another officer for an exchange and you see right off the bat, you see this speeding truck in rough terrain bouncing about. Uh, you're going to, oh, well, this is a bit odd and... And it comes out, license plate covered from snow. You pull it over. Like every single step, the officer is like, oh, okay, that's, oh, now this is, everything just keeps building until you're like, what the hell have I found here? And I mean shorts, right? It was, it was between yeah. minus five and minus 10. You know yeah. what? Like Northern British Columbia is like in the winter. It is not. Yeah. That's, that's not proper attire. That's probably one of the, I mean, the blood is probably the biggest thing to be like, oh, that's concerning. But also like, okay, you were in the middle of nowhere. What were you doing there in shorts? Like none of it would make sense as to, okay, well, why would you have been out there mm -hmm. in shorts in the middle of winter? A pat down produced a metal Leatherman multi-tool with several knife blades attached. The young man seemed very nervous. There was blood on the knife when the officer opened it. <sighs> when asked where the blood came from, the man claimed he'd been grouse hunting. This was far too much for that small a bird, and so this sent up more red flags. Yeah. The man then claimed, well, he'd used the blade earlier on a deer. As there was no rifle in the truck, this didn't seem to make any sense either. He hand hunts deers. Apparently, yeah, I, uh, the officers asked whether he had a hunting license. The man answered that he did not. So he was detained at the back of one of the RCMP cruisers and held on the suspicion of poaching. Okay, good. Because he's essentially admitted to that. Yep. So that you can you can you can lock him in your vehicle for that. Sure. Yeah. Um, a conservation officer was called to investigate the area that the truck had been seen exiting while the police questioned the man. There was more open liquor in the truck. As well, there was a backpack shaped like a monkey. This did not look like something that would belong to the brute in the back of the car. Uh -huh. In the backpack was a polka dot wallet containing a medical ID belonging to Lauren Leslie. Two crack pipes were also found in the center console of the truck with a heavy pipe wrench with blood on it, as, mixed with melting snow. Yeah, it's like as the killer couldn't have left more evidence. Well, they don't know that anybody's even dead at this point. I know, but every single thing, you, you lift something up and there's evidence. You look behind here and there's evidence. Like it's... I have written here the hot water this guy was in kept getting hotter. Yeah. <laughs> For the next two hours, the RCMP officer spoke to the man and conservation officer Cameron Hill searched the area where the truck had entered the highway. Lauren Leslie's body was located near midnight, concealed in heavy brush off a gravel pit accessed by the old logging road off Highway 27 that this man had been seen speeding out of. She was lying face down under an evergreen tree, having been dragged in into the bush alongside the gravel pit. <sighs> 
She had pants on, but they were rolled down around her ankles and feet with the underwear rolled down within the pants. So investigators would later comment how similar Lauren Leslie's positioning was to that of Cynthia Moss. Yep, exactly my thoughts. The young man was further detained, now on the suspicion of murder, and brought to the RCMP detachment for questioning. We've obtained audio of a police interview with the suspect at the time. We will provide a link to the audio, uh, which is about two and a half hours long. Oh, wow. After an hour and 18 minutes of chat, the interview turns to talk of the discovery of Lauren Leslie's body. So I've edited together some of the highlights of the initial denials by the man being questioned. The man was claiming that he was familiar with the area as he'd hunted there before and had just happened on Lauren's body. Here's some audio. I had, I had gone with her. And, and I got scared. And I seen it. I seen her stuff lying on the ground. And, yeah, I decided, decided to take off. It's like, fuck this. Like, is it gonna put anything on me? So I decided to take off. <laughs> yeah, it scared the shit out of me. Which is why, like, I have a girlfriend, soon to be wife, soon to have kids, sometimes we have a great job. Like, why, why, like, that's why it's a sh just a shitty situation to be in, right? Um, I'm calling it extremely bad timing. Like, I also have the legal advice for my lawyer not to be saying anything. Just on my way home, decided to cruise down there. Haven't been down there in a while. Cruise down there a little bit. Seen a bunch of shit. Child. You know what I've seen? Fucked off. It's just, yeah, I got scared. Mm -hmm. It'd be a frightening situation. Mm-hmm. What happened next? Cop pulled me over. Like, cop pulled me over, right? I gave him the, <laughs> I gave him the story, like, that I was, that we were hunting and all that. I'm sure you know this. That's why I said that, because I didn't want this shit to get, come my way, and I was like, scared shitless, because I'm not this kind of person, right? And I know I'm not. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on that, Scott? Well, he's not that kind of person, Mike. He said so himself. I mean, set him free. Yeah, it's disgusting how he tries to bring up his girlfriend, soon to be married, soon to have kids, soon to get a great job, to try to gain some kind of sympathy from, I'm just an upstanding person, you know, I don't do, and, and anytime somebody says, I came across by accident a brutal murder scene, and I thought, oh shit, I better get out of here, and took some of the belongings with them, like, do you think people are this stupid? Anybody's stupid enough to believe? Because if you'd happen across a scene like that, any logical individual would be, oh my God, let, I better call 911. I better alert the authorities. 
Because what what else? Why else would you do anything differently? Yeah, you're in the middle of nowhere, and you you're yeah. So the man continues to be evasive and not forthcoming with much information as the interview continues. He can be heard yawning in a number of spots. The interviewing officer asks him how he came to receive the abrasions that he was noticing on the man's knees and on his arms. The man had answers for that, claiming he'd received them when checking if Lauren was still alive. Here is some more, here's some more audio of the man being somewhat cavalier, even laughing during his responses. I'm assuming I'm from, like, flipping her over and just seeing if she was still alive, and she was not. That's why I got the hell out of there. And fast, too. I had, like, a couple scratches on my knees from the trees and branches and whatnot, and picked up the shit and went through my truck in reverse and got out of there. Okay. So tell me about how the body was like. How was the body when you saw it? <clears throat> like face down. Tell me about. Tell me about the body. It's a body. <laughs> like I've never seen one before in my life. Mm. Why do you think I got so fucked? I scared shitless. That seemed to be a natural reaction, my friend. So I got the hell out of there. Now you said that you're sure that it, the the person was dead. Well, pretty sure, yeah. Okay. Do you remember what the uh, like, it was dark and her face was dark and hidden. It was just like disgusting and I got the hell out of there as fast as I could okay. because I was scared right? and like because I have, a, I have a life and all that stuff. Yeah. I don't need to be mixed up in something like this. That's the story, Scott. Yeah, it's really terrible that he got mixed up into something like this, Mike. Right. <sighs> yeah, no words, really. I mean, just like not an ounce of anything he's saying is believable. No. I'd have an easier time believing a story that involved like aliens coming down. Well, what's missing for me is compassion for the human being that he discovered. Yeah, no, it's all, I'm scared. I was scared. This is a scary thing for me, such an upstanding citizen. I was scared, so I ran out of there not, was she, uh, what happened to her? Is she okay? Does she, like, do you know what, like, nothing about her. No. Nothing about her. Trying to establish more about uh, what the man knew, the police interviewer then asked him to describe to describe what he had taken from the scene as some of the items belonging to this young woman were found in his truck. Here are his responses. Very curious to hear these. Oh, I thought I could hand them to the police or some crap like that, I bet. Grab the wrench. The, the booze. Her bag. I don't assume it's her bag anyways. And... The knife, the booze, and the bag. The knife, the booze, and the bag. Anything else from there that you grabbed? No, cell phone. Cell phone. Okay. Tell me about where those things were. Like, were they? They're just laying on the ground. In relation to your truck, or like when you got out there? They're in front of my truck. They're in front of your truck. Yeah. Down a little bit of a hill. And where was the body? A little bit to the right. 
how could one rationally explain that? What's a terror? I saw, I found a, a, a dead body. It was brutal. It was disgusting. I was terrified. Thought though, hey, nice bag. I could use a wrench. Yeah. Like. A judge in the case would later refer to this man's responses as displaying a, quote, dehumanizing quality that is vividly revealed, mm-hmm. end quote. Spot on. Considering all the evidence that was found at the scene in his truck and on him, 20-year-old Cody Allen Legibakov was remanded and later charged with one count of first-degree murder in the death of Lauren Don Leslie. Lauren was in grade 10 at Nechaco Valley Secondary School in Vanderhoof. Lauren was legally blind. She had brown eyes and long blonde hair. According to court documents, quote, she suffered from some mental health issues that had resulted in her hospitalization on a number of occasions. Dr. Geed was her treating psychiatrist, and it was his view that she suffered from PTSD, a mood disorder, and mild to moderate depression. Ms. Leslie was discharged from the hospital on November 22, 2010, five days before her death. Oh. Dr. Geed testified that the depression for which she had been admitted had resolved and that she was looking and doing well. She was described by her grandmother as a good girl. So fucking young and I... Uh. According to a CBC article, Lauren's mother later stated that Lauren had texted her that she was going to be meeting a girlfriend that night. Quote, she was told to be home at 1 a.m. Donna said she dozed off and was awoken by a police phone call telling her that her daughter's body had been found. End quote. Oh, fuck. So you're just expecting your kid home, and instead of finding that, you get that awful phone call. Yeah. I was just watching uh, some true crime yesterday, and they were talking about... um, um there was video when a mom found out that her child had passed away and the scream and noise she made and how you, that's a noise you'll never, never, ever forget. Later investigation revealed that 20-year-old Legibakov had met Lauren online and they had been texting on and off since the 1st of November 2010. He'd lured her out with the promise of alcohol that he'd already purchased. He later claimed they'd had consensual sex before she went, quote, ape shit and started hitting herself. According to court documents, her autopsy showed that Lauren had, quote, died from a combination of blood loss and brain injury resulting from a series of massive blows to the head, causing extensive blunt force trauma and two stab wounds to her neck. In later statements, much later... Cody admitted the hunting story was not true at all. What? And that he had lied to Constable Keeler about it. He said, yeah, those first, the stories about me hunting, those were complete bullshit. The only reason I had said that was to try to, you know, get out of the situation any way I could, and it was the first thing that popped into my mind. Not to mention the fact that I got pulled over by a cop and I had all the items in my vehicle. I had drug paraphernalia. I had open alcohol. Um, so I wasn't ready to tell him what had just transpired. End quote. Yeah. That sounds probably like the most honest thing that he said. Yeah. Uh, because what other option does he have at this point? No, nobody's believing any of that shit. 
A thorough investigation of Lejipkov's residence and his truck revealed more about him, and evidence was collected linking him to the previous three murders. Mm. This included blood DNA evidence. His matched the sample that had been taken from Jill Stachenko, who died when Cody was only 19 years old. Jesus. They also found a pickaxe and another sharp tool believed to be murder weapons in the Cynthia Moss killing. Jeez. From court documents, quote, Forensic testing of the shorts Cody Lejbikoff was wearing at the time of his arrest for the murder of Lauren Leslie yielded two matches to the genetic profile of Natasha Montgomery. A subsequent search of the accused apartment located A, a light blue bedsheet which produced 30 separate matches to the genetic profile of Natasha Montgomery. Shit. B, a blue comforter yielding genetic profile DNA matches to Natasha Montgomery. C, two cuttings from the box spring mattress located in the bedroom of the Laird Drive apartment yielded full matches to the Montgomery profile. D, Cuttings taken from the linoleum floor in the dining area yielded one mixed profile with matches to both Cody Lejibkoff and Natasha Montgomery, two other matches to Montgomery's profile and one to the profile of Lejibkoff. E. A cutting from the carpet in the hallway outside the door to the master bedroom yielded three matches to Montgomery's profile. F. The blue bath mat seized from the bathroom of the apartment yielded four different matches to Montgomery's profile. G, a white and black hoodie seized from the apartment yielded four separate matches to Montgomery's profile, end quote. Jesus. So there is a lot of blood in his apartments that had to do with this missing woman, Natasha Montgomery. A lot. In regard to Cynthia Maas, quote, During the course of the police investigation, a female's black sweater was found and seized from behind the driver's seat of the accused's pickup truck. Tapings taken from inside of the neck area of that sweater yielded three samples of biological material with, which produced three genetic profile matches, two to that of Cynthia Maas and one to that of Cody Lejibikoff. A second item located in the same area of the truck was a white sock which produced four samples, two of which were hemochromogen plus for blood. These samples produced four profile matches, three to Cynthia Maas and one to Cody Lejibikoff, end quote. So DNA, DNA evidence connects him to Cynthia Maas' murder as well. A lot of DNA so far. Yes. Other items belonging to Cynthia were also found at Cody's residence, some of her shoes and some more clothes, other things like that. Hmm. Regarding Jill Stachenko, quote, Further DNA analysis of cuttings from a saturation blood stain on the large couch found in the accused Laird Drive apartment matched the genetic profile obtained from Stachenko from samples taken during her autopsy. When the investigators found no blood stains beneath the couch or elsewhere in the apartment, the investigation moved to the basement suite of 1510 Kearney Street, where the accused was living at the time of Ms. Stachenko's disappearance. At that location, bloodstains and eventually a DNA profile was developed from the carpet at the location where the couch had been that matched the genetic profile of Ms. Stachenko, end quote. So that was his old prop, his old residence. Right. Oh, geez. So imagine being the new tenants living in there and finding out like where you've just been like sitting or doing whatever, living your life. Yeah. Oh, somebody was murdered in that spot. Oh, yeah. That would be terrifying. Like, oh, holy shit. 
So on October 17, 2011, Cody Allen Lejbikov was charged with three more counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Jill Stachenko, Cynthia Maas, and Natasha Montgomery. The press coverage calling Lejbikov a country boy serial killer was huge. Mm -hmm. This led his lawyers to argue he would never receive a fair trial. He was tried anyway. Yeah, it doesn't matter what anybody's feeling towards him is. The DNA is the DNA. On June 2, 2014, Lejbikov's trial began in front of a jury in Prince George. On August 1st, the Crown finished its case after calling 93 witnesses. Wow. Yeah, that's like two months of grueling testimony, I'm sure. No kidding, yeah. On August 26, 2014, Cody Lejbikov took the stand in his own defense. He told the jury he was present when the three women died. He said three other people, who he refused to name, were also involved and that he didn't personally carry out the killings. How convenient, yeah. He testified that Leslie had flipped out and killed herself with a pipe wrench and the knife. End quote. Yep, totally believe them. On September 2nd, 2014, during closing arguments, Lejbikov's defense lawyer asked the jury to convict his client on four counts of second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder. On September 8th, 2014, Cody's lawyer submitted last-minute forms claiming Lejbikov wanted to plead guilty to second-degree murder. This was rejected by the court. On September 10th, the jury retired to consider its verdict. On September 11, 2014, Lejibikov was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years on four counts, uh, on those four counts of first-degree murder. He is one of Canada's youngest serial killers. Yeah, so, so he started off at 19? Yeah, I guess yeah. Peter Woodcock would be the only one younger. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. B.C. Supreme Court Justice Glenn Parrott added Lejibikov to the National Sex Offender Registry, given the sexual assaults committed as part of the murders and Lejibikov's apparent degradation of the victim's bodies. Quote, He lacks any shred of empathy or remorse, Parrott said of the killer. He should never be allowed to walk among us again. End quote. Damn skippy. Lejibikov's appeal was rejected in 2016. On September 20th, 2017, Natasha Montgomery's family and Eschatemic chief, Darlene Below, organized a news conference and a search at a rest stop at Bowron River on Highway 16. This is where they believed they might find Natasha's remains. They didn't find her there that day, and she remains missing. Hmm. She was declared dead in 2012 after the evidence of her murder came to light. We'll end the story part of this episode with some audio of Natasha singing some of her take on Knocking on Heaven's Door, a Bob Dylan song covered later by Guns N' Roses, as taken from the Highway of Tears documentary that we'll link to in our show notes. And here she is.
Oh boy. Yeah, some real emotion in her voice. Yeah. Yeah, she was really connecting to that song. Yeah, yeah, totally. And this is what drives me nuts about all these cases is that whole idea that human beings are being dehumanized again and again and again. They just become a killer's victim. Yeah. Rather than the people who they really were. Yeah. And you could hear in that voice a compassionate person. Yep. Yeah. uh, Whatever struggles somebody might be going through that's not how they should be defined. And that's not how they should be summed up. Exactly. It's just another element of the, how, how much of a tragedy these events are. Yeah. The whole thing is so mind blowing because if you're realistically, when there are cases like this, when flat out luck is involved in this person's capture, had that officer said, oh, I just got to go take a leak before I go. Yeah. Let me stop for a coffee. Yep. Any, as smallest little detail differently, the timing would have been off. He wouldn't have seen that vehicle pull out. He wouldn't have pulled him over. Like everything had to play out exactly as it was for this to happen. Had that officer said, I need to go take a leak, there would likely be other women dead right now. Correct. And that's just such a mind-blowing uh, thing to think about, you know. Uh, and, and what great police work as well, you know. He could have just been like, what is this Yahoo doing, you know. But no, he pulled him over. He he, he saw something that was suspicious and, and out of place and, and acted on it. And so that's some great, you know. It's just, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating case just because of how much happenstance had to be involved. Mm. Well, whew. That's it yeah. for that for that case. We've finally yeah. done that one. I've I've avoided it. There's a couple of, uh, well, I mentioned one cousin of Natasha Montgomery's in the Yumberyard, yeah. our friend Kathy, and there is actually another person who is a cousin of Natasha Montgomery in the Yumberyard. So it's it's mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I actually know the the cousin of Mister Lejbakov, so that's how I know yeah. how to pronounce the name. Yeah, we've talked about, you've mentioned him often, yeah. Yeah, so we've finally done this one. It's out of the way, and we don't, we can just put it in our rear view mirror. And yeah. I'm, I don't mean to be insensitive, but as I'm sure the families have a lot of trouble doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're, if you ever get to hear this, uh, Cody, just tell Natasha's folks where she is, please. Yeah, you've done enough damage, man. You've done enough damage. Just do something decent. All right. Voicemails. Let's do this. You can leave us one eight one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. That's you know, it you know what that spells. Dark Exactly. Um, if your call really stands out, you might hear it on the show. Here's one from the Ontario area, and I do believe it's Toronto. Toronto. Hello, Mike and Scott. This is Bobby calling from Toronto, Ontario. I've been a long-time listener of your podcast, and as you can probably tell from my accent, I am not originally Canadian. Uh, Dark Poutine has been so helpful for me um, coming to Canada. I always find that knowing the history of a country is great if you read the textbooks, 
But what really gets you understanding something is the crime that happened from the dark and terrible all the way through to your last podcast on the Flying Bandit, which was a delight and really, really warmed the cockles of my heart uh, during this hard time we're all going through. So normally I tell you to go shit in your hat, but I figured seeing as I am British, I thought I'd bring in a little bit of diversity to this, and I'll tell you to go defecate in your millinery wear. Have a great day. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to go defecate in my millinery wear. Yeah, what the hell is millinery wear? Well, well, a hat maker is a milliner, Scott. Hmm. Millinery wear. Yeah, Yeah. A little defecation never hurt anybody. No, but uh, yeah, I I just love that. I always love a British accent. Nothing nothing better, in my opinion. It makes me feel so common. So not proper. Yeah, not not proper at all. Uh, let's listen to this one. This one might be fun. Who knows? Hi, Mike and Scott. I'll introduce myself as Nikki. I've been listening for quite some time now and have felt very connected through the various younger yard groups on Facebook. Then you shouted out the crisis text line and it was like a very special hello right to me. I'm one of the professionals working with each volunteer responder, supporting Canadians of all ages who are in need or in crisis. So after dark nights of helping so many people, I come back to the Dark Poutine podcast and breathe a big sigh of relief hearing you guys be so respectful about all these pieces of history in our country. Thank you for the special shout out, the special hello straight to me for the work you do and respectfully, go shit in your hat. Thank you again. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, Nikki. <laughs> oh, that was really, really heartfelt. It really was. I really yeah. appreciate that. That was great. Yeah. And, and like, it's, I just love how there's a, a beautiful, powerful message sh- uh, shared with love, care, and compassion, and then punctuated by a go shit in your hat. Right? <laughs> it's beautiful. It's perfect. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Here's here's one that looks like it is from somewhere in the US and A. Uh, oh, no boy. Hi guys. My name is Deb. Um I'm an American. I currently live in Ipswich, Massachusetts. Uh sorry, I'm a little nervous. Uh I grew up vacationing in Canada. My father would drive us from Wisconsin to Ontario, and then we would fly into a private lake, not resortish, just in the middle of nowhere. And then I went to Nova Scotia twice, and I fell in love. And I've decided that I'm going to retire there, uh, Cape Breton, hopefully. Uh, and then my son <laughs> wanted to go to Toronto for his birthday present, so we went there for two days. I feel like I was born to be a Canadian, and I know I'm two weeks late on this message, but your podcast about the horror of what happened in Nova Scotia really broke my heart, and I think that's why it has taken me two weeks to even talk about this. But the way that you did that podcast was amazing, and... I mean, I listen to podcasts all day long, especially now, but I've been a huge fan of yours ever since uh, Georgia Hardstark mentioned you on My Favorite Murder. That was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And 
keeping by Emily. I'm a high school teacher, and she's 17. And uh, Anyway, I just want to thank you. Sorry, very emotional. I just want to thank you so much. Uh, that meant a lot. Anyway, love you guys. Bye. Wow, thanks, Deb. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that was... Uh... Yeah, emotional, and we really appreciate that. We love that you can, uh, people, our listeners, uh, our friends, whomever can um, feels be genuine and honest with us and emotional when they feel they need to. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, we want our podcast to be a, a place where you are safe enough to feel like you can express a real emotion if you need to. Yep. So absolutely, 100%. Thank you very much. Let's move on to some Patreon shout-outs, Scott. <laughs> Patreon, your favorite part of the show, I think. It, Yeah, yeah. So It's all my favorite part, Mike. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> I, I don't believe you, but whatever. You it's son true. of a bitch. I am that. I'm, I'm a terrible, terrible person. Oh, ugh. Yeah, yeah, I know. I just, yeah, it just keeps getting worse, too. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's start off with uh, somebody who I know well, whose birthday was this past May the fourth. Oh. My brother Philip oh. A. Ashton, also what? known as Baltic Warfrat. Oh, is, is that your is, okay. is back as a patron supporter? Thank you, Philippe. <laughs> well, thank you, ba- Baltic, <laughs> Mister Warfrat. Exactly. He's he's a good egg. He well, obviously, if he. He and I, he and I, uh, we we are uh, brothers of the same mother. So, yes. uh, yeah, we're not brothers of the same father, but the same mother. So, brothers nonetheless. He and my other half brother JP are just tall versions of me. <laughs> yeah, because uh, yeah, I guess uh, our mother decided that uh, short guys first. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, next we have Megan Ripley and I don't know where Megan is from, although, uh, there, um, there may be a dot co dot UK in her email address. Well, no, this Ripley, mm-hmm. this, this Megan Ripley, believe it or not, <laughs> she's walking on air. No, uh, I never thought I would. Oh, that's so the American free. greatest I American know. hero. That's how it starts. So, uh, yeah, no, she's actually from outer space. Oh, uh, her her great oh, oh Ripley grandmother I, is, I'm, is I'm, Ripley from Alien. I'm picking up what you're you're putting down. So she was born yeah. on the on the pod from the Nostromo. Is that what yes. it was? Oh well, wow! No, 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 no. Oh, that's not okay. no. Well, she's the great granddaughter of oh. that Ripley, which oh. is odd because that you would think that's in the past, but yet Alien was in the future. Space is weird like that. You can't. It is, you can't, it is yeah. definitely weird. What does what does Ripley do for a job if she's from space? Um, she has a very land based job because oh. after hearing the stories of her great grandmother, mm-hmm. she was like, you know, I think I don't think I need to uh, venture forth into the uh, great unknown because um, death happens, and so what she does, mm-hmm. what she does is her job is. Anti-rocket technology. Oh, she's, she's trying. Yeah, her job, like what she does, is she tries to create propaganda 
mm-hmm. uh, against NASA and anyone else, SpaceX, because she just she doesn't want us going to space. So she's trying to do her part yes. to be like, no, no, we, you don't want to go there. Rockets are terrible. They're going to blow up. It just, yeah. So uh, she's a propagandist. Oh, oh, great. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, as they should be, I guess. Yeah. Well, she knows. She knows. She knows what happens when we go up there, Mike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. It is, yeah. <laughs> Next, uh, we have... Oh, look at this. It looks like somebody who has upped their pledge oh. to the PM level. This is Erin oh. Elizabeth Ferguson, and she's from Kansas City, Missouri. Sweet. I love that we have uh, a, a PM in Kansas City. Right? KC. It's pretty, it's pretty neat. With the good old Chiefs. Uh, next, we have Katie Turf, and she's from Belleville, Ontario. Real, uh, good old Bellevue. Belleville. 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 There's bells involved. Oh, we, we have, oh my goodness. From Winnipeg, we have Heck Yes Vegas is a PM. Heck Yes Vegas? <laughs> yep, that's yeah. that's the name. Yeah. Heck uh, Yes Vegas. Hey, we all have our own names, Mike. There are, some are unique. Some are, are, are a generic, like Scott and Mike. Some right, exactly. are heck yeah. yes Vegas. We are probably about the most generic individuals that anybody yeah. could ever possibly meet. Yeah. Yeah. People say, you guys couldn't get more Canadian. It's like, it's like telling somebody there's bo- they're boring without saying they're boring. <laughs> <laughs> you are as average as average can get. Exactly. You, you excel at average. Oh, we definitely do. <laughs> and we help, my goodness gracious, here we have um, a Jen... Purdue, and I don't oh. know where Jen Purdue is from, Scott. You're going to have She's, to help me. Yeah, Jen is from Faro. Faro? And no, no. Yeah, didn't say Fargo. It's Faro. F-A-R-R-O-W? No, just F-A-R-O. Oh, interesting. Where yeah, Where it, on the planet is that? You don't know? It's in the Yukon. Oh. It's, uh, yeah, it's like it crosses, uh, the Pele River crosses it. So it's, oh. you know, it's, it's very been, remote. It's been very there many remote. times. Been there many yeah. times. Yeah. Now that I've mentioned it, it, it rings a bell. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's very remote. It's very, it's very cold. Even in the summer, it's still, uh, minus 70. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not, it's really <laughs> not a good place. It's not. <laughs> 70. Yeah. It's not very hospitable, really. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So what does she do there? Oh, she replaces broken thermometers. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of them are broken. Yeah. Well, people, the funny thing is with with that job is most people think it's because they're like, can't be fucking minus 70. This is July. Must be broken. So they'll call her and she'll come check it out. She'll be like, no, it's fine. It's it's minus 70. Here's my thermometer checker. Yeah. And she here's my bill. Because you, I mean, she went out there. You called yeah. her. She still had to perform the job. Yeah, she so, had to so, get on the ski do yeah. and go all the yeah. way there. So, or Only sorry, one. we're not advertising for that company. The snow machine. The snow. <laughs> and, and you know, the, she says that it's a ratio of one to sixty-seven uh, thermometers that she actually has to replace. Oh, okay. Yeah. So one you, in sixty-seven. So, yeah. So sixty-six of them are always. No, it's that temperature. It's just functioning correctly. Yeah, it's functioning. Yeah, no, it's really that cold where we live. Well, thanks, Jen. Uh, next, we have Melissa Whalen, and she's from Corbeil, Ontario, and she is a PM. 
Sweet. Right? Thank you. Yeah, very right. Thank you very much, Melissa Whalen. Next, we have Justin Roberts from Liberty, Missouri. Another oh. Missourian. Yeah. Is, it, is it Missourian or Missouriite or Missouri-ish? Because I know Michigan is Michigander. Is it really? It really is. Oh, yeah. that's te- oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it's <laughs> like look over <laughs> here. What are you Michigandering at? <laughs> but anyway, thank you, Justin Lo- Justin Roberts from Mi- Liberty, Missouri. Mucho like gracias. Free, free town. It probably is. Liberty. Next, we have Doug Kaplan from Kissimmee, Florida. Oh, I gladly it, Kissimmee you. <laughs> <laughs> See what I they like, did there? I like Kissimmee. I, I actually yeah. like some of the uh, the place names that we get. Yeah, uh, yeah, like Kissimmee is uh, yeah. is very interesting. As is this next one is my favorite place name from here to say. Oh, this is Christine Allen, and she is a patron from Coquitlam, British Columbia. Oh yeah, Co- Co- yeah. Co- so- Coquitlam. Coquitlam, yep. So my thing is the border. So you go from Burnaby to Coquitlam. Yep. And um, if you live kind of near the border, what do they call it, Mike? Burquitlam. Burquitlam. Why, in my opinion, why didn't they call it Coquernaby? Right. That's, I've always wondered. Why not Coquernaby? I'm sure you've always wondered that, Scott. There's a lot of things that I I know you wonder about that, Mm -hmm. that tend to actually have very explainable Things, but I don't know this one in particular. Oh, so good, good. I've I've, I've stumbled, fumbled. Sh- I've stumped. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next, we have Sarah Searle, who is has upped her pledge, and she is from Portland, Texas. Oh, sweet! Well, there's a Portland in Texas now, is there? Yeah, there is. It's, it's getting around. <laughs> it's funny how that works. Portland just keeps showing up in all kinds of different places. I don't know how that works, but. Uh, you would you would think cities are static, but I'm learning that they're not. Just Portland just keeps moving around. Oh, you silly Portland, you. What are you doing over there, Portland? Oh, Portland, get back in Oregon. You silly goose. Okay. Uh, next we have Rebecca DeConde, and she is from the town of my birth, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Oh. Thank you, Madam Blue Noser. Rebecca de Conde. Well, well, well. Thank yeah. You, thank you. Yep. I uh, I love it when we, we get a blue noser. I, I always, as uh, our British listener said, the cockles of my heart become warm. <laughs> <laughs> and now here's a name I'm sure to mispronounce. And Stuart? her name, no. <laughs> her name is Trudy Teekroeb. Oh. Or Tekroab, or something that I'm terribly, terribly mispronouncing. <laughs> so thank you, Trudy. But we don't know where Trudy's from, so Scott's going to have to help me yes. with that one. Speak for yourself. She's from yeah. Bogota, Colombia. Oh wow! Yeah. Does she? Does she? Uh, is she? Uh, does she sell uh, kidnap insurance there? Or? <laughs> No, the, the, there's there's way too many. Uh, this it's not a very good trade because there's so much competition. Right. So she she manufactures maracas. Oh, I didn't yeah. know maracas were made in Colombia. Well, that's now all I do. you, Mike. That's all <laughs> now you. I do. Exactly. 
Well, thank you, Trudy, for the name uh, with the last name I slaughtered terribly. Yeah. Uh, much appreciated. Did you? So, a little, little known fact, though, about the Maraca factory. What's that? Okay. So, a very people are constantly, you get scared because you're like, oh, shit, is that a rattlesnake behind me? Oh, no, it's just a maraca. Just a maraca. Yeah, yeah like someone no drops one, like, they just, it rattles, rattles along the floor. Yeah, and, prankster walking along, going oh, to the bathroom, just rattling, and people are like, oh, rattlesnake. <laughs> no, no, prankster's nope. afoot. Just, just playing, but just pulling a pl- prank, it's a, yeah. uh, it's actually not, uh, no, it's just yeah. a maraca. No, no, no need to panic. No, well, I mean, sure, but no. You can if you want. I mean, yeah, you could, we're not. <laughs> we're not telling you when and when you shouldn't panic, but yeah, that, that's you. fair enough. Yeah. All right, uh, we have one more patron, I do believe. Oh. And this is Chantal De Silva from Toronto, Ontario. Oh, thank you, Chantal. More Ontario. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess um, it's it's interesting that uh, we get a lot of Canadians who are who are helping us out. And we yeah. really appreciate it, especially as uh, uh, there's a lot of people out of work right now. So oh I'm God. pretty res- surprised and tickled pink by the response that we've had from people. It's really been moving, to tell you the truth. Yeah, we've got just beautiful supporters. It's really quite quite amazing. Let's move on to PayPal. Oh. Uh, we have Catherine Cole, and oh. she says, sending love and lots of donut money and lots of donuts. I just listened to the episode about the tragedy in Nova Scotia. The pain that you must be feeling as individuals is evident. I'm so sorry. Living in a city rocked by senseless a senseless shooter in 2015, I know this pain and the hopelessness and helplessness you must be feeling. As always, you handle these things with grace and humanity. Love the show. Sending hugs. hugs. Love Cat from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Thanks so much, Cat. Much appreciated. Very, very much. And next for Donut Money, we have Megan Beatty, and she uh, did not leave us a note, but you know what? Thank you very much, Megan. Actually, where's Megan from? Did you say Megan B? Megan Beatty. Oh, Beatty. Okay. So I thought it's like maybe, okay. It's not Warren uh, Beatty. It's, well. It's Megan. It could be her, it, his daughter. If it was, then also great. But uh, yeah, no, I know. I do happen to know where Megan Beatty is from. She's from Fazo, Togo. Oh. Yeah. You ever been to Togo? Uh, no. Oh, yeah, you had to think about it though. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. I might've been to Bogo. Buy one, get one free. That's a sales event, typically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're frozen. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Very different. No, this is Togo. This is Togo, not Bogo. Oh. Okay. Take one, get one free. Oh, okay. And where does she, where is she taking one and getting one for free? Yeah, Togo. What does, she, what does she do? Well, what does she do? Yeah. Oh, uh, in, in, in Togo, uh, what she does is she's a sign manufacturer. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's regular work. People need signs. Yep. I guess so. People need signs. I mean, uh, Togo's known uh, throughout its history as, uh, 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 
town of or city, a country of great manufacturers, sign manufacturing. So, you know, if you want to follow in that trade, Togo's the place. There you go. Yeah. Well, th thank you so much. Next, we have Catherine Assay, who is a friend of ours from Oregon. Thank you so much for all you do. Much love from Kathy in Oregon. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Now, the question is, which Oregon? Because where was it at the time that she had sent this? It may have moved. It may have moved. Was it in Oregon? Was it in Texas? Was it in New York? We don't know. Yeah, exactly. And here we have one from Natalie Volans. And she sent me another message saying that her credit card didn't go through because it was stolen. Nah, yikes. So, so she sent us a Patreon payment instead because she didn't get things uh, organized correctly or in time to for it to update. So, you know what? That Jeez, really so sucks. Yeah. People who steal credit cards are douche canoes. Yeah. As yeah, the I'm captain so from uh, True Crime Garage likes to say. Or they are, uh, as Scott likes to say, douche twat. canoes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to say twat waffles, but douche canoes yeah. is fine. Yeah, there you go. And she says, uh, uh, thanks for enlightening, uh, the enlight always enlightening courage of both current and past events. It sure helps us get through these strange and lonely times. Stay safe. Go poop in your toque, but it's kind of warm for toque, so maybe go crap in your cap. Natalie. <laughs> oh, shit. Hey, I'm wearing a cap, so there we go. You are. You look like a page boy this evening. Yeah. Yeah, Newspaper? so things are opening up here in British Columbia, so we will be back in the Dark Poutine studio next week together. Because we're, our bubble is allowed to expand, and we will Thank be expanding our personal bubble to include my good friend Scott. Thank fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is this is a great uh, workaround, but uh, <laughs> the delay between messages, the constant internet slowed. Yeah. Oh it'll yeah. Be it's, nice it's, to... It'll be nice to be in the same room again. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much to all our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for one-time support, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already, it means a lot to us. If you subscribe to the show, you can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. If you feel like it and you're an Apple user, go bury a silly uh, review or two on 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 the uh, Apple podcast review placey there. You know, <laughs> you got you know it the, out. You got it out. You got it. You know the drill, yeah. Yeah. And check out our uh, website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like, follow, etc. on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.